Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Trialogue, a courtroom conversation. That's right. This is a new podcast that will only be available on my Patreon, which is launching in May. But I wanted to give you, my Dialogue listeners, a chance to hear episode one. Now, just a week ago, we got the verdict in the Derek Chauvin case. And as you know, if you follow me on social media and here on the podcast, I was so captivated by that trial, but I was also quickly overwhelmed trying to stay on top of coverage to report back to you, my listeners and followers. So Trialogue became my solution. I'm going to do what I do, which is interview people who are well-positioned to speak about trials, cases, all these things going on in our country and talk to them about why it matters and what it means for the bigger conversations happening around that case, right? The case is always a specific instance of a crime playing out in the courtroom, but usually there are larger and societal repercussions and consequences to those courtroom conversations. So that's what Trialogue is going to explore. And I'm really excited because there's a lot of good trials coming up this year, especially because so many were postponed from last year. So just for a taste into what we're going to cover when they start happening, Nancy Salzman and Allison Mack sentencing, uh, Robert Durst's trial. Scott Peterson has some updates in his case. These are some of the ones we're going to tackle on Trialogue. Now, for the premiere episode, I am delighted to bring on past Dialogue guest and friend of the podcast, Kirk Nurmi. Kirk Nurmi is an author, survivor, and of course, former defense attorney to Jody Arias. And we discuss the Derek Chauvin verdict, as well as what it could mean and what we hope it means for the future of policing in America. Kirk can relate to Eric Nelson right now. Eric Nelson, of course, is Derek Chauvin's defense attorney. And I ask him about that. I mean, at one point, Kirk felt like one of the most hated people, maybe second only to Jody Arias in the country, maybe the world. So we're going to talk about that. And we're definitely going to talk about what he hopes to see next. Kirk is so thoughtful and he has great ideas as to what, in his opinion, should come next. And of course, I'm all on board. So with that, please enjoy this premiere bonus episode of Trialogue brought to you by Rebecca Sebastian and Dialogue and get ready to join the Dialogue Patreon in May. Diehards only. Also, sometimes when recording a podcast, it is very easy to forget names and the name of the brave young woman who we mentioned who took the original video of George Floyd's murder is Darnella Frazier. I 
couldn't let this episode go without saying her name because she is a hero and a brave young woman and we're grateful for her. All right. Hey, Kirk, I am so excited to talk to you. I know you are fresh off court TV in light of this week's big news in terms of trials and cases. Officer Derek Chauvin was convicted on all three charges. So let's start there with the conviction on all three charges. Guilty. Were you surprised? I figured he would be definitely be found guilty of something. But the language of the second degree murder charge I found is almost defined itself. And I worried that the jury could have a hard time imposing that sentence or that crime upon him. But I was delighted to see uh, that they did, in fact, convict him on all three counts. And I think about a lot about the juxtaposition of the Minneapolis police saying that someone died in their custody to medical care to Derek Chauvin being taken away in handcuffs. And what a defining moment that is, uh, I think, for our country. It really, really is. And I want to get into that, what this maybe means in terms of police reform. But before we get there, that second degree murder charge, were you not sure because of some of the language, which includes things about assault and a felony, right? Yeah. And, 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 you know, I wondered if in terms of given that he was acting as a police officer, would they believe that it was an assault, right? Did, when did it become an assault? You know, that sort of thing, because it becomes, it can become obviously an improper chokehold or, or whatever we want to call what Chauvin did. There was some legality to his arrest and then it maybe shifted to an assault. And I worried, would the jury see that shift? Got it. Well, they seemed to see it. And honestly, if you watched this case, which I know you did, and for anyone watching, did did it seem clear to you this whole time that this was the state's case, that they were winning? I mean, I hate to use that term, but I felt like the defense put forward not a lot to undo what the state had built. Do you agree? Well, certainly you always have concerns, though, right? Because we remember Rodney King and cases like that where evidence seemed pretty ironclad. I mean, OJ, we could go down the list of cases where evidence seems ironclad. And in this case, of course, we had videotape. I don't think if we if we didn't have videotape, I don't think Mr. Chauvin would have been convicted. You know, trial-wise, I think I did see it going in the state's favor the whole way. But like you say, you have those concerns when you have cases like Rodney King and other cases where guilt seems so obvious and things go another way. And particularly in a case where the defendant is a police officer, because police officers tend to be afforded a, a certain deference in front of juries that, that hopefully is beginning to change. Do you think it's this moment in time as well, this 2021, you know, on the heels of all these past events that have happened in the years leading up to this, that position to the jury to be able to find him guilty, even though he was a police officer? I think so. I think that's part of it. And when we talk about 2021, I'll go back to what I said earlier, cell phones. Would he been convicted without a cell phone? Probably not, right? Had that 17-year-old girl, and her name eludes me now, had she not had the foresight and courage, if you will, in front of these police officers to videotape that, I think Mr. Chauvin and, and his cohorts his his co-defendants, will ultimately have gotten away with it and will have created a police report and full of lies that they would have got away with. Right, right. It's pretty hard to get away from the video and from the witnesses, which were one of the most powerful parts of the state's case. I know they had so many medical experts as well as police experts speaking to 
you know, what was not allowed, what should not have happened in those situations. But I found the witnesses, the bystanders, the people that ended up being just everyday citizens, their stories, I found some of the most compelling testimony in total. Yeah. I mean, I think there's something to that, right? We saw these people watching a murder and their horrific reaction to it, right? And so that obviously helped the state prove their case. But to me, one of the most telling witnesses was the 911 operator who called the cops on the cops. This wasn't just some random person deciding to do that. This was someone with a great deal of experience who recognized the incorrect nature, assaultive nature, I should say, of Derek Chauvin's actions and and called the police. So, um, you know, applause to her as well. And I think she was one of the most compelling because that's where we saw that blue line start to crumble, not on the stand, but in real time, because she was one of the first to, to start chipping away at that blue line. And then we saw others have the courage to do so after she did. No, you're so right. It was a really brave thing to do. And also, she didn't seem to take pleasure in it. I mean, you can hear her calling and saying, hey, look, I don't know what's going on here. What's what? I just wanted to make sure you knew. I mean, it was so sincere um, and obviously turned out to be the worst case scenario what followed. Um, I couldn't help but think how perfect a person you were to talk to, right? Derek Chauvin, probably not a very... I mean, he's probably one of the most hated men in America right now. And I would think his lawyer, Eric Nelson, is getting his fair share of animosity for representing him. That is something, Kirk, you might be able to relate to. Do you think about Eric when you're watching this unfold? Are you at all like thinking about the time when you were representing Ms. Arias? Or, or, or do you think about his experience at all when he goes home at night and what's, what it's like for him right now? Um, All of the above. I mean, it was certainly a a walk down memory road that I'd rather not take, right? Because I understand exactly what he's going through in this in this high profile case, and understanding, you know, it's broadcast and, and how people are passionate, how they believe, they probably believe that he believes Mr. Chauvin's story. They don't know what he believes. They, they're going to attack him relentlessly. He talked even in, uh, even in court about how his email was flooded so much and he can't even use that email account. I, I connected with that so much on so many levels, people, you know, all the hate mail, everything else. I'm sure he's had to have extra security around in his life, extra scrutiny. I don't know if he's married or, or what sort of family he has. They probably face security. So it's certainly a time of just hypertension when you're really trying to just actualize the Sixth Amendment in the courtroom. And when we have these external pressures on the lawyers and probably all parties. I mean, I'm sure that that happened to the prosecutors as well. I'm sure they had their fair share of of threats. So all those parties involved have to deal with a lot of extra stuff and people that I would call terrorists because you're threatening people that are involved in a criminal justice process in this country. And I think that's an act of terrorism. Wow. So correct me if I'm wrong, but he's not a public defender, right? The police union hired him to represent Chauvin. My understanding is that a police organization was involved in, in the retention of Mr. Nelson. I'm not sure whether he was under contract with them or or chose to take the case or what have you. Okay. But, you know, either way, even if he chose to take the case, which is different than my situation where I was ordered <laughs> upon it, he, he, he still shouldn't be subject to any of the kind of harassment Agreed. he has because we could not have the justice system we have if, if, if nobody was willing to stand up and defend, right? And... 
a lot of people are, like I say, not going to understand that, but it's not a defense of the actions. It's a defense of the Constitution. Right. And we don't have the justice system we do if we don't have people like Mr. Nelson. Right. And we want justice for all. And that includes Derek Chauvin standing and having his day in court. He has the right to that. Yeah, there's no unpopularity exception in the Sixth Amendment. Yeah. You know, we don't we don't decide, well, we don't like you, so your Sixth Amendment rights don't apply. Yeah. That's not the way it works. And, you know, trial by social media is also not the way it works. Agreed. Much to our chagrin sometimes. Um, yeah. So what can you can you speculate as to the conversations Eric Nelson is probably having with his client right now as he waits for sentencing? Well, I think sentencing somewhere off in June, right? Is that? Yeah, correct? I think it was six weeks. So that would probably be June. Yeah. So I think right now he's probably not having a lot of conversations. I know that uh, Mr. Chauvin's under a lockdown. He's probably on suicide watch. Now, what that means in the Hennepin County Jail versus what it meant in Arizona, I don't know. But it could mean anywhere from 24 hours a day isolation. It could mean even being strapped to a gurney if they believe that he was a suicide threat. So right now, I'm guessing Mr. Nelson is probably taking a few days away from it all to take care of himself, monitor his safety, and eventually get to the point where he writes a sentencing memorandum and that sort of thing. Okay. And do you think the protection that Chauvin is put under, is that preemptive before, and and I'm asking this broadly, so before somebody who's just been convicted shows any signs of suicidal tendencies, do they just impose that because of this high profile nature and because he is an officer and what he might face in jail? Were those measures taken or do you think he had to exhibit something first? I think those measures were taken automatically. And then depending on how they felt about it, there might have been a a suicide risk assessment, that sort of thing. Some sort of jail psychologist would have talked to him about that. But I think just that status alone was enough to um, bring forward the kind of measures that were brought forward. We see that in a lot of high-profile cases. Remember Jeffrey Epstein was arrested sure. and put in isolation and, and Giseline Maxwell, right? For different reasons, but that high-profile target that they are is is reason enough for the jail to take that extra care. Yeah, and they don't want another Epstein story on their hands, you know, where right. was it or was it not a suicide? Um so this seems pretty significant in terms of an officer being convicted. What does this mean, do you think, for the conversation around police reform in our country, which I know you're passionate about, you know, I am. Obviously, it's positive. It's a step in the right direction. But so many people still feel that they're, the work has to be done so much sooner. It's great that we're pressing charges now against law enforcement and that they have to stand trial. But what do you think it means for the future of that conversation in the years to come? Sure. I think back to one of the quotes that's attributed to George Floyd's daughter. She said, Daddy changed the world. And I think we're beginning to see that come into fruition, right? And I talked earlier about the juxtaposition between the false police report, the false narrative that was put out originally into Chauvin getting put away in handcuffs. So I think we're seeing the tides start to turn about what policing is going to mean in the future, what accountability is going to mean in the future. We have states like Colorado eliminating qualified immunity, um, other states considering it. I understand that that's part of the bill that's in front of the Senate now involves the elimination of qualified immunity. So we're going to see, hopefully, police start to shift. And it sound, might sound funny but to a gentler, kinder 
uh, approach because I think that's what the times need. And I think, you know, a lot of people ask me when this topic comes up, well, you're going to lose all these experienced cops, to which I say Derek Chauvin was on the force for 19 years. That's not the kind of experience I need. That, and, you know, and there's all these arguments, oh, well, you know, cops, are we're not going to get well-trained cops. Nobody's going to want to be a cop. And to that, I really doubt it. I think that's fear-mongering, and we're going to see a new direction in policing that is going to maybe in some ways limit the responsibilities we put on police, hopefully attend to their mental health, attend to the amount of hours they're working, that sort of thing, to make sure they are engaging in the sort of self-care that makes them a person who is prone to de-escalate as opposed to escalate. I mean, I think about the, uh, the soldier that was pulled over in Virginia, right? Do you remember this? And he's, I'm sure most people have seen the video, but he pulls over to the gas station and he says, I'm scared to get out of the car. He's got his hands up or they're on the wheel. And what does the officer say to him? The officer says to him, you should be scared. Okay. And automatically the officer has escalated that situation. Why? We don't really know. Is he working too many hours? Has he not been properly trained? Is he just looking to incite a situation? Um, So those are sort of things that have to be examined when we go forward, when we talk about a reformation in police work and what policing is going to be. What's the parameters of policing? Yeah. And what's the ultimate goal, right? I mean, if you think about George Floyd at its simplest, it was in that isolated moment around an alleged counterfeit bill. So So that feels like a place where a police officer's discretion could come in, right? Is this worth the chase for that violation? Well, I I would say that I think that that is certainly not worth the death, right? It's certainly not worth the death. And everybody can agree on that. Most people of sound mind can agree on that, right? But the question becomes... To me, in that situation, okay, somebody thinks there's a, a counterfeit bill being passed. You know, it's a matter of investigation and de-escalation, mm-hmm. right? And we saw the escalation with George Floyd. We saw this rapid response to put him back in the car, to put him on, put him on the ground, all those sort of things, right? That went too far. How could how could we train police to de-escalate in that situation? To show up to investigate the situation before it becomes a violent situation. Exactly. And all of this, I would imagine, requires better training, more thorough training. So in terms of allocation of funds, and I know that's getting kind of granular, but like, what is your thought on that? When you hear police reform or defunding the police, what are your thoughts? Well, you know, I don't like the term defunding the police because I think it gives off the impression that we're talking about just, you know, doing away with the police force. And I don't think anybody who said that believes that. But I think it's about reimagining what they do. Yes, it could require more commitment of resources, maybe to pay officers more and to train them better. Right. But it could also mean the shifting of responsibilities? Do we want them to show up to every mental health call? Mm. Do we want them to show up to every little thing that we demand of police officers? Maybe it's just too much. Should a police officer be responding to a suicide call by himself or herself? You know, that sort of thing is really what we need to do when we reimagine our police, because are they equipped to they're not mental health professionals, right? Are they equipped to do that? Does that put stress on them? When they have that situation, do we go back to the officer 
and say, you know, do you want some time off? Can we get some counseling, et cetera, et cetera. And then the machismo comes in. No, they don't want that. And it goes on and it ultimately builds up and it could build up into the sort of escalation we saw at George Floyd Square or Virginia or with Mr. Wright, who was shot, you know, about 10 miles from from the George Floyd trial while it was going on. So obviously there needs to be reform and a lot of people don't see that need to reform. I just can't imagine that the current state of police activity in this country is sustainable. Yeah. And I do think some larger agencies have mental health services tied in with law enforcement and it's, it is almost a requirement that they go through, but I don't know that that's standard or uniform across. Well, I know it isn't across the country. So maybe other jurisdictions will start kind of moving in that direction that other cities have piloted different programs. Um, so what about sentencing? Is it correct that it could be um, as high as 40 years? And correct me on that if I'm wrong. And what do you predict for his sentencing? I believe it's as high as 25 years. So oh, he'll only 25. be charged. He'll be, he'll be sentenced to the highest offense. And I believe that was 25 years. Okay. Um, one of the things that uh, Minnesota has is a um, aggravating factors. People who follow the trial know that at the conclusion of the trial, there was discussion about these Blakely factors, yeah. aggravating factors. And what the Supreme Court has said is that under the Sixth Amendment, you know, a jury decides guilt or innocence. And then that was extended to the application of any punishment that exceeds the normal punishment, the standard punishment. And off the top of my head, I don't know what that is in Minnesota. In Arizona, we always had a minimum, a presumptive, and an aggravated term. And anything that went above the presumptive had to be justified by aggravating factors. Now, those can be found presented to a jury. Or as we saw in Mr. Chauvin's case, it can be waived and the judge makes that determination to go over the presumptive sentence, right? And so there's two aggravating factors that are applicable to Mr. Chauvin's case. One is the position of trust. And two is that he committed the crime in front of a child. If you remember, one of the witnesses was nine years old. The other that is applicable, I guess, I should have said three that are applicable, but there's like a general catch-all. Anything that the finder of fact believes is an aggravating circumstance under the uh, situations of the offense, right? So the judge can take a look at all that, and he he has wide discretion in that regard, right? Um, Mr. Nelson's going to put forward his memorandum, his belief why that the aggravating factors don't apply, why a, a middle ground or presumptive sentence should apply, and or maybe why less should apply because, you know, I'm sure we're not going to see any criminal record, that sort of thing. Yeah. And so, but that, but there's going to be that, of course, is going to be juxtaposed to the, I believe it's over a dozen complaints against him as it, during his tenure yeah. as as a police officer. So I think the judge in this case will probably uh, go at at least 20 years. Wow. I wonder if there are some other things that could be done for him to help him understand this in a bigger context than just his case. What is of greater concern to me is the police that are still out there so that they don't create the next Derek Chauvin, right? Absolutely. We can't say, and I don't know that we can take reformation so far as to say that we are going to teach you what a bad person you are, right? Um, Reformation, unfortunately, is going to be limited to trying to deter future criminal activity. And I think with him, it's a very low risk. And Ultimately, I think, too, whether no matter what anybody tells you, right, you aren't going to make the change until you see the problem. And, yeah. and 
And so for Mr. Chauvin, that might be impossible because he will probably live the rest of his days feeling like what he did was right and that he was convicted based on a police-hating political climate. And that's probably not going to change. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I guess I'm naive to think that maybe there's some breakthrough that could happen, but you're absolutely right. This needs to be done on the front end before somebody is sitting on trial. But it seems like what I'm talking about is more philosophical and it is like, how do you get somebody in in that position to see the humanity in the people that they're working with, I think is what I'm going to. And I, I don't know how you do that. And and I don't know how you do that either. And I don't necessarily think you can accomplish that because yeah. they can only see what they want to see. Right. Or right. that they're willing to see. Then, then it becomes an issue of moving law enforcement in a different direction of not feeling so adversarial with the people that they're um, working with and, and serving and protecting and not going for the win so much as the best resolution, like the most peaceful resolution. And I know it's all very like fluffy language I'm using right now. Um, and that would be a real shift, but maybe that could be part of police reform is that as a different philosophical approach to policing. I think so. Like what I talked about earlier, that kinder, gentler approach on both sides, right? We have an adversarial system by nature in the courtroom, right? But does it have to be everywhere? And one of the things that is, is a reality that maybe true crime fans don't think about all the time because they see everything in the courtroom. Most criminal justice happens on the street. Mm. It happens on the the ter what we would call the Terry stop traffic stop, stop on foot where a, officer makes his or own her own judgment regarding what to do about the conduct right whether it's expired tabs right. whether it's you know what whether it's a felony stop that sort of thing right and so that sort of thing is exactly the that encounter might happen a, a million times a day but why do certain ones escalate into what we see with Dante Wright and that's not all the cops fault okay all, in in every situation so we need to acknowledge that and i think you know back to what i was saying earlier about healthcare and mental health care for the for the officers and training and that sort of thing i think we have to care about our officers more and they have to care about us more yeah. it's not a matter of this adversarial it's a matter of finding this common ground and you know, I was talking to our friends on the Badge Boys uh, the other day, and we talked about this idea that, you know, there's this seemingly adversarial relationship between Black Lives Matter and police officers. Mm-hmm. And what I've said to them is, don't you see that the Chauvin case is a perfect intersection of that, right? Because Derek Chauvin puts every cop who pulls somebody over immediately puts that that cop under the lens of suspicion, right? You don't know, particularly if you're a person of color, you don't know if that officer walking towards you is the next Derek Chauvin or not, right? And you don't, so if, and, and Black Lives Matter, and so that makes it more risky for the officer and it makes it more risky for the person, right? So that intersection of of Black Lives Matter, caring about Black Lives, making sure that they are respected in a way that they haven't in the past, is also beneficial to the cop because when the cops are respecting black lives, they are perceived less of a threat. And there's all kinds of law enforcement organizations that talk about the need for trust in law enforcement. And we've even heard, I even heard uh, yesterday, I think it was our new attorney general, Merrick Garland, talking about this very thing. He talks about the uh, investigation into the 
policing practices in in Minneapolis, and and talking about that we need trust. Yeah. To for police to do their job, there needs to be trust. And right now, we don't have trust. The trust has been breached, and some communities feel that happened a long time ago. So, yeah, we're in a tough, tough spot right now. But I'm so thankful for you talking with people. You seem like such a bridge. You know, you can you can speak the language with your law enforcement friends and, and maybe share some of this other side, That's this other conversations happening and how it could benefit them in other ways besides just being better for for humanity. So good job. Well, thank you. I, I like to think that, you know, I, I have a friend of mine who's, who's one of her favorite sayings is only love heals. Mm. And I think that that is applicable to almost every situation is applicable to this situation as well, because to color all cops as Derek Chauvin is, is inappropriate. Yeah. And to not respect the work that law enforcement does is inappropriate, but it's also inappropriate to cast an extra lens of suspicion on people of color that the police have traditionally done and gotten away with for years. Well said. Uh, is there anything else we should be thinking about in terms of this trial as we await sentencing or the conversation around police reform that we didn't get to that you want to share? I guess what I would want to emphasize is that I don't want anybody out there to think that this is the end. I want them to see that this is the beginning. Because if we really want change, we tend as citizens tend to hand over our power. We have busy lives, et cetera, et cetera. This needs to be the beginning of the conversation, not the end of it, not lock away shelving. Okay, everything's great now. That's not what it's, this has to be about. There's no way it's about that, right? We've had other shootings since then, other incidents since then. So we need to step up, come to the table, people of all walks of life. We need to take into our own hands what kind of police force we want, because ultimately the police are there to serve us, not themselves. It is not to be this adversary relationship. So let's begin to work together to build those bridges to instead of black lives matter supporters and cops pointing fingers at each other what if they were to talk to each other i mean it's just not that hard right we talk past each other all the time but we don't listen to each other and i think if we listen to each other this moment can be a moment to to paraphrase the words of of george floyd's daughter where he he did in fact change the world now it's up to each and every one of us to make those words, turn those words into reality, into the world that we live in. And is your best suggestion for, for citizens, everyday people like me to do that, to get involved locally, I would think? Get involved locally, talk, do podcasts, speak, whatever it is. Do everything you can to bring more peace into that relationship and to, yes, to see what kind of police force do you want. Or it might be as simple as picking up your phone and recording a cop like the, the brave 17-year-old girl did, right? All those sort of things matter. Those little things matter. I love that. That's such a good word, Kirk. Thank you so much for, for weighing in on this and, and bringing your very specific and special point of view. I really appreciate it. I appreciate the time, Rebecca. Thank you. You are listening to Trialogue, a courtroom conversation, a Patreon-only companion to Dialogue, a true crime conversation. Both podcasts are hosted and edited by me, Rebecca Sebastian, audio engineered by Jason Usry. You can follow me at DialoguePod on all social media platforms. Learn more and sign up for my newsletter at RebeccaSebastian.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you.